There's always something on the horizon. This could happen, that could happen. And that's what I try and do is I try and anticipate what challenges could lie ahead with us. The biggest one right now is, is real estate values. You know, the pressure on housing affordability with the you know, increasing interest rates, we keeping it very- Welcome to The Flow real estate and money show for people in Canada looking to understand the home buying process to demystify real estate investing and to make mortgage financing accessible for anyone. The goal here on this show is to help people understand ways to make their money work for them, get in the market sooner and realistically completely open up the box on how mortgage financing works. I'm Alex McFadden, your host, and I can't wait to help get you into the flow. Private lending is scary. Private lending is bad. It's something that a lot of people talk about on the news and you're going to lose a lot of money. Well, that's what they say, at least. But it's not actually the case. And the intention of today's conversation is to share with you a little snippet about how private lending actually works. And one of the people behind a local mortgage investment corporation out of the Vancouver area in BC. So that you can find out a little bit more about how he thinks and what his evolution was and where the money is going and what's actually happening. That's the goal here is to really understand the specifics of private money, how it works and see if it makes sense for you as an investor to get involved with. Brad Curry joins us today. He is one of the owners and one of the directors of Accepted Mick Financial. And last year, he lent over 75 mortgages out over to many different families and had the experience and the opportunity to see what's been changing in our real estate landscape firsthand, understanding specifics of where people are investing their money, where they're losing their money, and what's actually happening. I couldn't think of a better person to come on than Brad to actually talk a little bit about what he's experienced lately, but more importantly, his relationship with money and how he got involved with private lending and what he would do if he had money to invest today. It's a smoking episode, and there's just so much to take away from the conversation today with Brad. I hope if there's anything that you take away from this conversation, it's just an understanding that there are different options out there, and what you read on the news isn't always right. Enjoy. Just like that. Love to hear it. Brad, what's up, man? How are you doing? I'm doing great. Excellent. Thanks for having me here. <laughs> yeah, of course, man. I like the moment we come in. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm doing fantastic. I love the energy. On a Sunday morning, I ask you to come down to 1130. So thank you for doing that. Appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. You know, before before we're talking about the depths of private lending and mortgage investment corporations, I understand you're heading over to Hawaii in a week's time. Yeah, over to Maui. Oh, man. So I'll be there for a week in a golf tournament with about 140. 40, 50 people. So look love it. Love it. So finally able to let the steam out after this. Uh, how long does it take you to build out these annual reports you're working on right now? Oh, it takes oh, a good four or five days, you know, a few hours a time at a time. Yeah. You know, on top of day to day work, on top of the day to day things. Yeah. yeah. Nonstop, nonstop. Yeah. An annual report. Just so our listeners know what we're talking about here, what is what does that actually entail? What is the purpose of it? What is it? Well, basically, it's to report to basically inform our investors. Yeah, report to investors once a year. So we've finished our year end. Our financials have been all audited now. So so we prepare a report that we give to our all of our investors, which also is part and parcel of doing a online. PowerPoint presentation for them as well coming up here next on Thursday. Right. And when you're talking about investors, you're talking about the folks that are putting the money, giving you the money to go in and lend out, right? That's right. The investors Perfect. about shares in our company. Well, we kind of fast forwarded a little bit, didn't we? Yeah, <laughs> we did. Yeah, we jumped, we jumped right into it. Yeah. But that's okay. Most people uh, have a general understanding of the idea or the concept of a private money lender. 
But right. I would argue that most people's general understanding is exceptionally vague unless you're in the industry. And then even right. being in the industry can be convoluted or complicated because it's Mick or is it a single person or what the heck? What are all these different things? So, Brad, if you could, if you were talking to a grade five, a grade five individual and you were to explain to them what it is, what is a private lender? How would you explain that? To a grade five individual? Basically, a private lender is somebody who has money that they want to lend to somebody else in return for return on their investment. So an exchange of interest. Exchange of interest, exactly. Perfect. They want to yeah. borrow some money and they want to pay it back with some interest on it. Okay. So now there's different types of private lenders. Correct. Right? Yeah, that's right. And and can you help us understand what the different types could be? Yeah, there's for sure. There's in terms of the private lending space, there's mainly two. We have the mortgage investment corporations, and then you have individual private lenders. So an individual private lender would be somebody who says they have $100,000, for example, and they want to lend that money out in the form of a mortgage to another individual. So they would lend that money out, negotiate the terms, the rates, et cetera, and receive the payments directly. Okay? So a mortgage investment corporation is more like a, a pool, the best analogy is a mutual fund. So you buy a share in the fund, in our case, a stock, you know, a share in the stock of the, of, the, of, the, of the company. And all the money is pooled and lent out over a number of different mortgages. So it basically diversifies and, and, and spreads the risk around. So you're not, all your money is not lent on one particular loan because if that loan were to go bad for some reason, you, you, the individual accept all the risk. Yeah, okay, fair enough. And that's in the individual yeah. case, of course. Yeah. Whereas the Mick, as you mentioned, you all share the risk together, so there's less risk that's associated right. with that. Yeah. How do you even get involved in private lending, Brad? Like, where, like I want to know, let's go back to your specific situation. Where did private lending and the journey of journey of journeys come in? Like, where, where did that come into play? Well, I was in the mortgage industry. I started about, well, way back as in real estate, but before about 19, early 1990s. And then I eventually became an independent mortgage broker around 2001. And that's when I got started to get exposed to lots of different lending opportunities and started to work with private lenders for clients. And I found that I started reading up on it, learning about it. And I thought, well, this looks like an interesting business opportunity. So we started in 2008, opened up a MIC in 2008 as a part-time thing to accelerate what to along with what I was doing as a mortgage broker and just it just evolved over time okay so so, so just like a natural evolution yeah so you went from real estate yeah. into mortgage and then yeah. into private lending and then you're right. like hey let's I like this 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 Mick thing let's go yeah let's give it a shot we give it a shot and we started out and you know I think we started out with two hundred thousand dollars yeah you know to lend out and that went pretty quick yeah and so <laughs> and then now we've built it up to the point where we're just you know almost 19 million Wow. Incredible. In in terms of total assets. Pretty substantial growth. And that's been in what you said about 13, no, I guess 15 years. 15 years, yeah. So it was interesting because we started in 2008, right in the, we started in April 2008. And of course, September 2008 was when the financial (laughs) crisis occurred, right? Lovely. So it was interesting times, right? So, So what was it like to go through that? Well, it's always an uncertainty, right? You always, you know, get into new ground. And, and, but at the end of the day, you know, there's a need out there to fill. People need money. Uh, and we you know, make some lending decisions and try and be as prudent as we can and continue to go through it. So <clears throat> thinking about 2008 and then and then now forecasting to where we are today and looking forward, not exactly the same, but there's 
obviously a lot of calls for some level of recessionary measures and yeah. concerns of people losing their jobs and inflation. Like, does this make you think back to that time and, and what it was like back then at all? Any memories? Well, it's interesting because, you know, I'm putting together this report and, and a lot of it's data, but a lot of it, you know, is commentary as well. And it's kind of reflecting back over the last 15 years. And there always seems to be some challenge that we're facing, right? It's never sort of smooth sailing. There's always something on the rise and this could happen, that could happen. And that's what I try and do is I try and anticipate right what what challenges could lie ahead with us and the the biggest one right now is is real estate values right? mm. you know the pressure on housing affordability with the you know increasing interest rates we keeping a very close eye on, on real estate values not only what they they are today but where they could be right in you know in 6 months or a year from now and as a private lender when you see property values going up it provides probably to a degree level of comfort well, put it this way, increasing real estate values makes up for a lot of bad lending decisions. Right. right? So you get chance one, chance two, chance three. So when, when we see the NDP and the federal government coming in and providing regulation after regulation, trying to dip housing values, yeah. create a little bit of ingestion, a little stress. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, and I'd like to see it start, it's starting to turn the corner a little bit, like maybe looking at ways of rather than penalizing certain participants in the market, there's, there's starting to talk, there's some more talk about incentivizing. Yeah. And this was something interesting that when I started my career back in the early 1980s, uh, they used to have a program called the MERB program. And, and what it was designed to do was create more rental housing units. And what they did is they had, it was multiple unit residential building. That's the acronym for MERB. So what they did is they created a, the ability for an individual investor to buy a unit in a building, which is going to be rented. And they were able to depreciate that unit, um, claim depreciation on it from a tax perspective. So it created actually an artificial loss in their cash flow, right? So that loss on that unit could then be written off against their other income. So it created an incentive for a lot of professionals, people to, to, to purchase these investment units. And of course, a lot of units were, were built. Why do, you, why do you think it is that, like, we'll walk down that road right now. Why do you think it is that at that time they were so pro real estate from right. an investment perspective? In the United States, of course, they allow the depreciation right off still. Right. And in Canada, we've gone almost 180 degrees the opposite direction. That's An, right. Anti- anti-investors, anti-investment properties, anti-everything to do with investment real estate. Right. What are your thoughts on why we've gone that far in that direction? I think it's that, you know, sometimes the government feels that they're the ones who have to do everything and control everything. But I think they're maybe starting to realize they just can't do it. It's too big a task. You need the cooperation of private enterprise mm. and, 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 you know, to, to make things happen. Right. So rather than penalize... It's, I think it's a better approach to incentivize. Right. Right. What a concept, so, eh? Well, yeah. And then you can see that now the federal government is trying to incentivize municipalities or cities yeah. to fast track new, new projects. Yeah. Right? If only they were on the same page. If only they're on the same page. But yeah. at least they're, they're starting somewhere. Yeah, it's a good sign. It's yeah. a good start. We'll yeah. see where it goes from there. <laughs> uh, Brad, I'd love to know about your personal journey around money. In my I guess it's been 12 years now of, of being involved in the mortgage industry uh, mm -hmm. and working with countless professionals, countless people's, people in, in the industry, out of the industry, real estate and otherwise. Right. I've learned that money is a deeply emotional topic for a lot of people. And mm -hmm. a lot of times their past can dictate how they feel about money today and it can dictate the success that they have financially mm -hmm. in the future. When you grew up, how did you first understand the concept of 
just how money worked and 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 where was your first foray into understanding the idea of of investing versus saving and and where did you learn these things well going back i think my parents were very very helpful in the beginning i mean growing up we didn't I think we we did okay financially as a as a household, but we didn't spend a lot extra on things, right? So everything was before any expenditures made, thought was given, mm. right? Do we need this? So do we know don't need it? That sort of thing, and then also starting out early in my career, didn't have money. Mm. It was tough, you know. I started selling real estate in 1981, mm-hmm. which was actually the peak of the the last real estate boom, where the interest rates shot up in the month of March. I recall went up to started heading up and eventually approached or got up to around 19, 20 percent. Real estate values are dropping. I couldn't make a living. I had to leave mm. the industry, and then came back a few years later. So, so when you don't have money, you, when you get start to earn some money, you start to appreciate it more, right? What it does for you. And so, one of the concepts of my education, my you know, my economics teacher, I call, is very simple concept: is that when you earn a dollar, you have a choice. You can either spend it or you can save it. Right. So that was sort of the whole concept of starting saving. And then when, when I when I was unfortunate, I have, my wife is very smart with money, too. So when we, we got married and everything like that, we started to really focus on money and saving, etc. Do we know exactly how to what to do with it and where to do, invest it? Those sort of things. No, those things have been learned over time. But. So thinking back now from that time, as your parents taught you, obviously, about the worth of a dollar, so did the economist yeah. and your yeah. wife understood it. You mentioned saving a few, time, uh, a few times, but right. we haven't really talked on, on the idea or concept of investing, which obviously you're heavily tied into at this time right, right. now. Right. Time goes on. What were some of the, the, the moments, or if you could think of any moments in your life that, that really got you understanding and, and building up the concept of investing? Like, what was it that triggered you and how did you start to figure this out? Well, as a process over time, I found. So I, I remember we used to contribute to RSPs a okay. lot. Right? Yep. That was any savings we had, we put in there. We had, because you get the tax deduction, et cetera. Which is, and then you start to accumulate some money there. And you go, okay, what, what's the best way, how to best way to invest it? Mm-hmm. So at that time, I started dabbling and buying some mutual funds and a few things like that myself. And then, you know, the, you start to get a little bit more money and I thought, okay, I looked at the world of financial planners. So I said, well, you know, if, at the time, say if I if I'm generating eight percent a year myself, I would think a financial planner with their expertise should be able to generate more, mm. right? You know, X plus something. So went down that route, and then found that often sometimes you're dealing with one planner, and then they leave and they go to a different firm, and you know, there's a lot of change there. And then I met a number of years ago. I met a fellow by the name of Dougal Schuen. I don't know if you know Dougal or not, but he was he was a founding founder of VWR Capital, mm. okay, which private lender, private lender, another private lender, major private lender, competitor now. Anyway, so I got to know Dougal, and you know we we did some business and together. And he said something to me that really stuck in my 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 mind. He says he says do something you know with your money that you know use you know don't invest in things you know don't invest in things you don't know about. Right. And 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 that stuck in me. And that's when I started thinking, yeah, well, look at different ways, investing in some real estate or investing in mortgages, you know, these sort of things. So I try and key on my own personal 
preference. I like to, I think diversification is very important, but I try and key on invest in things that I know about. I don't only think about Bitcoin. Mm. At Bitcoin, obviously people have done very, very well. Some haven't, but have you? But I don't understand it, so I'm not going to invest in it. Ah, so key. Invest in what you know. I think just the willingness to to take the step forward and actually start investing and start learning about it is a key point that you had mentioned there. Right. For most people that I talk to, the the challenge associated with money is the fear of investing right. in general. And I think that comes down often to a lack of knowledge, which is what we're trying to accomplish by having these conversations here today and providing opportunity for people. Right. Uh, was there a point at which you made a, a mistake, an investment mistake at all? Was there anything that happened that caused you to to lose money? Or sure, I mean, I think I, you know, I'm guilty of oh, you're talking with a buddy or what have you, and they tell you oh, they've heard about this stock. It's you know, the XYZ company mm. is going to do this or that, and you end up buying it, and it goes the opposite direction. Mm. So I've made lots of those mistakes over the yeah. years. Yeah, looking for the big, the big win. Right. Right. The quick win. The quick win, the big, yeah, exactly. So definitely, you know, that, that, that was definitely something that I recall getting sidetracked on. Sure. If it looks too good to be true, right? That's right. Okay. So so how did you transition from saving to investing? Well, I think saving, I mean, before you can really start to, well, as soon as you start saving, you can be investing, right? It's just as, as you start to build, accumulate some more savings, then more options open up. Well, I truly believe that so many people they don't think about the concept of even investing their money and certainly right. don't think of anything outside of whatever their bank offers right. because of a fear of losing the savings and a lack of understanding of what investing is right. and what it isn't. Mm-hmm. And so for most people, even the average Canadian that is saving money, their concept of being able to invest is, I, I don't think I can do that right now. I don't even right. understand it. And I don't know how to bridge that gap. So I always find that there's a point often with people where it goes from, okay, now I understand how money works and it's dollar mm-hmm. and dollar out or however that money goes out. But how did I make that transition to actually having money that I've saved to now thinking about what can I do with my money? Right. And that's powerful. That's right. Because while you might not think about that, I think a lot of people don't actually consider the power of what their money can do for them if they just take that next little step. Right, right. And that's definitely true. I I look at it like, it's very challenging today though, I think for people to save money, right? It's Mm -hmm. under these circumstances that we've been in for a number of years, really. We just see that as how many many first time home buyers have you worked with, you know, in your career who've actually saved every dollar that they're putting as their down payment. Mm. even being 5% of the purchase price, right? Mm. So there's always that sort of assistance. So it's, it's definitely a challenge, but it can be done and people do it. The other thing too, as I look at is people purchasing a property, I think is a, such a fundamental pillar in their financial overall financial plan because that's saving money, right? Because, you know, you make a payment, mortgage payment every month, part of majority of it's interest, you know, but the other part's, principle and that builds up equity in that house that Mm. property and that's savings that can be used for future right it's so true it's so true well yeah thanks for sharing your your insights on Mm. the investing side Mm -hmm. so one of the actual investments that people consider and in particular when they're asking us we're not financial planners but if they ask the question that's right one of the opportunities is investing into private lending if And in many circumstances, that might be a situation where someone isn't able to or prepared or uh, wanting to invest into real estate as far as just a house. So one of the options is a mortgage investment corporation. Mm-hmm. And and the thing, I think the reason that a lot of people don't is because, again, a lack of understanding or fear. 
oh, I thought those were only, you know, high interest loans for people who, you know, don't have a job or don't have right. any opportunities. And, oh, don't they foreclose all the time? And, uh, you know, is this some guy that's hiding in a closet? I mean, you might work out of your closet. But uh, so these <laughs> yeah. are the types of things that we hear all the time from our borrowers and people who just generally speaking ask what other opportunities that would be out there. So from a mortgage investment corporation point of view, what do you think is... The, I guess, in your mind, what type of person are you looking for as an investor? Do you try to qualify people based on their level of experience? Or or what are you looking for when you're looking for an investor? Well, unfortunately, we just can't take out every investor, mm-hmm. given the regulations we have to operate under. Mm-hmm. So when we started out, and a lot of mortgage investor corporations start out this way or operate this way, and it's just basically we could only, investors could only be our immediate like family, friends and business associates. Once we get beyond that, then the BC Securities who regulate mortgage investment corporations in British Columbia want investors to meet certain criteria, which is we call accredited investors, which is one person with a million dollars in net assets, Mm. not including real estate. Wow. Or a household person who's earned $200,000 or a household that's earned $300,000 per year, gross Mm. income. So it really limits down the people who can actually participate. So that sounds like it uh, could be very prohibitive relative yes. to 10 years yeah. ago. Yeah, and it, it's it's really unfortunate because mortgage investment corporations have proven to be very solid investments, right? Now, there's been bad stories like there are in all, invest, you know, all investment scenarios. But you, perfect, I'll use an example of somebody who came to us. It was a retired gentleman. He had $100,000 he wanted to invest, but he was retired on pension and couldn't meet the criteria. But here he is on pension looking for a way to protect his money, wants a good return, you know, better than he can get in the bank, and doesn't want to take the risk of investing in stock markets and mutual funds, which can go down in value, mm. right? Most mortgage investment corporations, like in the 15 years we've been involved, we've never lost money. We always make money. Mm. It's just the nature of the business, mm. you know? So it's, but the the regulators feel that, this is a very risky proposition, hmm. even though First they've been around for a long year, long time. Mortgage Investment Corporation started back in, I believe it was 1984, 1980, early 80s. So they've been around for a long time. So there's a lot of number of them out there have good track records, much longer than ours. So, but it, it fills the gap between that, you know, term deposit, GICs, you know, versus, you know, investing in mutual funds, which have, can experience, or stocks directly, which have more volatility, have a better return potentially, but more volatility. So, so why do you, why do you think that mortgage investment corporations or funds have, have been pigeonholed like this? I just think there's just been some bad, bad, you know, bad situations where, okay. where people have, there's, you know, just, you know, some bad apples, right? Mm. That, that have caused the um, regulators to, don't look as favorably on um, what what mortgage investment corporations are doing. Interesting. So I'm just looking at your upcoming annual or financial report here, annual report for mm-hmm. 2023. Thanks again for sending that over to us. 
And having a little peek at the annual return or expected return since 2009, and uh, looking at the report, the lowest I can find here is 7.66%. It's annualized, I assume. 7.66% annualized. And for, I would say, probably obvious reasons, and the interest rates in 2021 were incredibly low uh, during that year. But other than that, we've had high watermarks of 9.69 in 2015. And for the year 2023, it looks like we're at 8.35%. And I would imagine it's likely to grow with interest rates increasing for 2024 as well for the next year. That's... pretty incredible when you think that for most people are you know yes you can get a gic paying five percent right now or four percent but mm-hmm. typically speaking that's not the case and that's usually right. most people have their money in some kind of a fund paying two to four percent interest or that's something right. of that nature correct so so again looking at that from that perspective would you say that this has a lot to do with your fund like you uh, as a private lender are just very focused and clear and able to return these funds or was is this something relatively typical from a, a private lender in, in canada it's typical. It is typical. It's definitely, definitely typical. Yep. Okay. So, so it is pretty typical. I love this as well. Twenty-five thousand dollars invested in two thousand eight. You provided a, a really good chart, and th- these numbers are so key. And I, I appreciate that you shared these with us because a listener really should understand what does it mean to invest. Like, it's yeah. one thing to say eight percent. What does that? What does that mean? Right. It's like right. an interest rate of two percent or four percent. Well, what is my payment? Right. right. So specifically, twenty-five thousand dollars in the TSX from two thousand eight would have been worth thirty-seven thousand dollars for reference. The Dow seventy-six. So mm-hmm. obviously a fair investment fund. Uh, yourself eighty thousand dollars, one hundred ninety-eight based on, and th- that's after expenses as well that's in, yeah, it's in the, yeah that's the investor's hands that's right. right so the actual fund is doubled double what you say is every every uh, 6.3 years now while maybe not the most lucrative possible investment out there given the fact that there's never been a year lower than 7.6 percent yeah. in the better part of the last you know 15 years i would say that it seems to be to be a relatively safe fund right yeah i know definitely yeah yeah it's yeah, it's interesting. So it's and the other thing too is that I did I didn't send you this chart, but you know, like if I looked at some numbers or so, if somebody's age fifty years old, and they start with us say for twenty five thousand dollars, and for the next fifteen years they they invest an additional ten thousand dollars per year, and using average return, I actually used eight point five percent as an average over that time period of fifteen years. In 15 years, they turn 65. They can then start to withdraw that money, don't contribute anymore, supplement their retirement by $60,000 a year, and that money will last 10 years to the age 75. Mm. So as they, as they start to draw down on the funds. So right? what was the initial starting point? Age 50. And the initial actual investment? 25000 So 25000 10000 per year, and, so and that's $150,000. Yeah, yeah, so total... Co- Contribution one hundred and sixty five thousand. I think it works out. They'll have a total value of about four hundred and twenty five thousand dollars. Then they can just start to withdraw if they, as an option, mm-hmm. to supplement retirement. Not bad, so, right? So it's not bad, exactly. So, so it's so there are there are there definitely are some real use case scenarios, and I'm sure you've seen it from some of your investors over the course of the last yeah. uh, number of years, fifteen years now that they've taken the opportunity to do something like this, right? That's right. Yeah, the power the power of the numbers, right? So. Well, let's let's shift to the the client facing side of the business and sure. the problem that private lending solves. We could have multiple episodes on this conversation. However, I do want to highlight right now what are some of the I don't know if use case scenarios are the best uh, point or best question I should ask right now. But who's taking a private mortgage right now with accepted financial? What do they look like, and what are the problems that you're solving? Oh wow, there's there's it's it's a fairly fairly wide gamut. Basically, people who can't qualify. 
who want need money and he can't qualify through I think of one one situation where we did a loan recently where fella his he owns an acreage property he wants to sell it he needs some some money to help his cash flow getting through the next year so we lend he has lots of equity in his property so we lent him $75,000 to to help him get through until he sells the property and, and pays us back. The other situation we see fairly often is, you know, unfortunately, you know, bad things happen to good people and they get themselves into a financial situation. So that might be a health, quite often we see a health issue. Someone may have you know, a health issue that they, they were preventing them from working for an extended period of time. They're back now on their feet again, but through that period, they racked up their credit card, you know, maybe started to not make payments on certain debts and obligations, and so their credit rating suffered, so they, they can't qualify, but they're back now. So so I call it, sometimes people need you know take one step backwards to go three steps forward. So we come in, provide them the financing, pay off all their consumer credit, et cetera, so now their credit rating will, will increase in time, and you know, usually typically 12 months or so, and then they can go back to the bank and requalify with the a bank or, or another lender, an a, an a lender, and pay us off. How often do you find that out of these types of situations where people are stuck in, in debts and pay that off, like how frequently are they able to exit and move on? Well, in our case, like this, this past year, our turnover was typically around 50, 60% of our mortgages turnover every year. Okay. So, but this past year it's dropped down like 35%. And that's basically because the, the high interest rate environment we're in right now, it's difficult for people to refinance at these higher interest rates. And does that have you concerned about the future of, of the money and where these people are going to be able to be paying out their mortgages? Or? Yeah, it, it's definitely a concern because at some point, whenever we lend money into a deal, we always ask the question, well, how do we get our money back? So, so we turn away a lot of deals where we, we're just not confident that, that we're, the people are in a position that they'll be able to pay us back. Right. Got it. So, well, so that's that's an important consideration because mm-hmm. everyone thinks that just anyone and everyone can get the money. That's right. But which is obviously not the case. I mean, right. and, and maybe they will through an individual investor or another bank or something of that nature. But you guys are obviously judging this. And uh, Brad, if I had to ask you the question, how many applications do you see a year for for lending? A year? Well, it sort of depends on how much money we have available. In the last year or so, we haven't had a lot of funds available, so we're not out promoting to the broker community that we have funds and to lend. But we would we'd fund typically, I think, about forty some mortgages a year. Okay. So out of that, we we probably would see a hundred, hundred applications, maybe hundred, maybe upwards to one hundred and fifty. Okay. It hard depends, you know. We, uh, Another way of looking at it, if for every 10 applications we receive, we probably issue commitment letters on four of them. Okay. So six of them we turn down. Okay. Just not our thing. Or or not say a commitment letter, but an expression of interest, right? Yeah. That we'd be interested in lending on it. And then out of that, we might fund one or two, typically. Mm. No, those are really, really key numbers to, to, to yeah. think about. Yeah. I, I want to ask you a few questions going back to that money conversation, if you don't mind. Sure. And I, I'm because initially, you know, now that you've put some thought into it and you've thought about how people are getting their private the money, yeah. where you you picked up your your theories and ideas, investments and so forth. What I'd be curious to know, especially as someone who's been in the industry for the better part of what appears to be 30 plus years now is this is a good thing it's a badge of honor my friends badge of honor you've had the opportunity as well to listen and talk and Mm -hmm. hear people from a different perspective and a different side 
what I would love to know is how do you think the attitudes that people place towards money and debt has has evolved in the past number of years? If you could, and in your own words, in your own answer, like what, what have you noticed in the past, well, I guess it's oh, your career. career. Well, I think it's a lot, people aren't afraid of debt as much as they were, I think, when I first started my career. Before it was like, there's a, there was a more of a consensus out there you know, don't borrow money. If you need to buy something, you save the money until you can afford to, to mm. pay cash for it. Mm. Today, it's more like, no, let's just borrow now, get what we need now, and and we'll pay for it later. Mm. Right? That's a big. That's a big change. Any also. thoughts on why why that could be the case, or why you think that might be the case? Well, I think it's a lot of it's it's business. You know, the the industry, the financial industry, driving it right. Like, sure. hey, it's easy to borrow money. Like now, it's funny. You know, looking at car sales, for example. Um, you know, the financing car sales are now down to a weekly payment. They used to advertise, well, here's the monthly payment, you know, $1,000 down, this is, here's your monthly payment. And then they said, $1,000 down, here's your bi-weekly payment. Now they're saying, here's $1,000 down, here's your weekly payment. So imagine if one day they're going to come, here's how much it costs you per day, right? So I think that, that that's a lot of it just to drive business, right, in, in, in high-ticket items. There's a financing component. You're no longer buying a vehicle. You're buying a monthly payment, a weekly payment, or a biweekly payment. You're no longer buying a house. You're buying a payment. That's that's, that's, that's the, right. Uh, the attitude. Like my parents' generation, I mean, there are a lot of this. Like, you no, know, you, if you want to buy a car, you save the money and you pay cash. But the other thing too is prices have gotten so high that, you know, you know, as you know, like even to, to an average uh, property condo, entry level condo, you know, in the Lower Mainland, just to save the down payment is a real mm. challenge, right? Brad, if I had, if I gave you two hundred thousand dollars to invest today, mm. and I said your time horizon is is five years, yeah, what are you doing with that money? Diversify. Sorry, I'm going to diversify. Okay, so I'm not going to put it all on one thing. Okay, even though I'm in the business, private lending business, and I certainly have a, a, a good good holding in, in in our company, but I still look at other options. Okay, but going back to my theory of I like real estate, I understand real estate. There's different ways I can that money. I could certainly would put it into a mortgage investment corporation. If I couldn't purchase a, a pro, use that money to purchase a piece of real estate, I would look at buying into real estate investment trusts, REITs, mm. which are fairly, fairly common because it's just like a same concept as in our mix. Because we just, it's investors who are pooling all their money in the, you're owning a little share in this shopping center in Ontario and that apartment building in Calgary and this piece of property in Vancouver. So, so, so that's, that's where I would be leaning towards right now. Hey, your answer is the best answer. Appreciate it very much, man. Thanks for coming on and bringing your knowledge today. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. That was an unreal episode of the flow. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did on my side right here. If you haven't already done so, make sure to check out all of the incredible resources that we have available. You can find us on Instagram at Flow Mortgage Co. You can find us on our website, getflowmortgage.ca. And of course, don't forget our free first time homebuyer masterclass that's currently available on our website for anyone who listens to the episodes. And if you loved what you listened here today, the only thing that we ask for is to share this with someone else that you think this could help and Hey, maybe leave us a great review online.